0: So I was in total denial that I was sick. I didn't understand that your brain can get injured just like your knee. I just, I didn't understand that. I was of the mindset that I needed to keep pressing forward and fix all on my own whatever it was that I was feeling. And then I started to have these even darker thoughts and that's when I felt like I understood my mom in a way that I never wanted to understand her. Like, you have these thoughts that, like, you want to die. And it was terrifying because I've always been afraid my whole life for the moment that that might happen to me. And where that fear came from was I have a photo book of her um, when she was... Like teenager, And she looked really happy. And I was like, there's no way. I just don't believe that this 16-year-old knows what's going to happen to her. And that was so scary because I was like, am I a ticking time bomb? Does it just happen to people? Her brother took his own life. Like, it runs deep in her family, so I just knew that there was a possibility. And then when it did, I thought that that was just my fate. It now happened to me. And because the narrative I was told about her was... She just had to go. Like she just, she was so sick that she had to go. And I was like, well, I guess I'm so sick that maybe I have to go because I don't know what else there is.
1: That's Alexi Pappas. And yes, it must be that time of year again because this is part one of our annual best of 2021 edition of the Ritual Podcast. Rich Roll Podcast. Greetings and happy holidays from everyone here at the RRP Mothership. Welcome to the show where for the last nine years, I have endeavored to have deep, meaningful, long form conversations about things that matter with a wide swath of the world's best and brightest minds, discussing everything from fitness and education, science, nutrition, and environmentalism to arts, spirituality, literature, entrepreneurship, athleticism, creativity, and positive culture change. And this past year was no different. Despite 2021 being a year that we can all safely label as challenging for a variety of reasons, I yet find myself full of gratitude for the just astounding number of incredible evergreen conversations we were able to produce and gift to you over the course of the past 12 months. And so as the earth has made its way back to this fateful position, having made yet another miraculous track around the sun, it is time once again to prepare for the coming new year by taking time to pause, to breathe and to reflect, to take inventory of where you were last year in order to celebrate victories, deconstruct setbacks and set goals for who you wanna be when we all find ourselves in this same celestial position 12 months from now. I believe in this annual practice that the blank slate 2022 represents can bring the hope and inspiration required to make our goals a reality. And so it is in this spirit that we indulge in annual tradition here at the podcast to end each year with a two-part compilation of the finest podcast excerpts from the previous 12 months of the show, full episodes of which can be found in the show notes on the episode page at richroll.com. Think of these next two episodes as both a refresher course for the devoted RRP fans and also as an anthology for those of you who are brand new to the show. But first, let's acknowledge the awesome organizations that make this show possible. We're brought to you today by Momentus. Over the last 16 years, I can safely say that I have tried almost every single plant-based protein out there. And I can tell you that most of them are highly processed, with tons of additives, and or they taste terrible, they're not third-party tested, or simply just don't hit the nutritional bullseye with a legit science-supported formula with the appropriate amino acid profile that promotes optimal nutrient absorption, which is all just a long way of saying how enthusiastic I was to be introduced to Momentus's 100% plant-based protein, which solves for all of the above and then some with a precise blend of pea and rice proteins, which yields a complete amino acid profile, tastes great, and has become my go-to to to ensure my body is supplied with energy for proper recovery and function. Momentous products are simply the best in the industry, which is why they're used by over 90% of NFL teams by Olympians, Tour de France champs, and world-class athletes across every sport. With all the BS in the supplement world, I trust Momentus's industry-leading quality standards and quality. Try Momentus for yourself by going to livemomentus.com richroll for 20% off plant-based protein and all of their top-of-the-line products. That's dot scom slash richroll for 20% off. At worst, it turns your whole life upside down, but no longer does that mean you have to break up with your favorite brew because my pals at Go Brewing are making all your favorite brews minus the alcohol, fewer calories and more productive tomorrows. It's not every day that I get the privilege to witness the inception of a company collaborating with our podcast, but that's exactly what happened with Go Brewing. I'm gonna tell you this story. A few years back, I spoke at this event in Illinois, fittingly named Go. And it turns out that that very day catalyzed Joe, the founder, to start his own N.A. beer company, Go Brewing. I had no idea about any of this until I bumped into Joe at Jesse Itzler's Running Man event the other month in Georgia. And he shared this story with me. I savored his fare in all its varieties and... Deeply moved by the mission and what he shared with me and just impressed with the insane taste and quality of his alcohol-free concoctions, I wanted to help share the discovery. Made with natural ingredients faithful to traditional beer styles, Go Brewing has an impressive lineup of delicious, small-batch, craft, alcohol-free brews, all without added sugar or artificial processing. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but... Basically, you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code richroll for 15% off your first purchase. Okay, let's kick off this best of with the man who got the year started, former Navy SEAL commander, Rich Deviney. On the pod to promote his book, The Attributes, Rich delivered an incredibly powerful primer on how your attributes determine life outcomes and how you can train said disposition to create more optimal performance in all areas of your life. So here it is from episode 571, Rich DeVinny.
2: How is my life better now in January, 2021 than it was in mm-hmm. January, 2020. Admittedly, that might take some thought, right? But you will come up with answers, you know. One of, the, um, one of the best ways to put yourself in the proper state, and I love this question, is to ask what you're grateful for. Gratitude also is an enormously powerful chemical combination. When you are truly grateful, you're getting oxytocin, you're getting DHEA, you're getting um, dopamine. Mm-hmm. Um, asking yourselves, what am I grateful for now, um, is a great way in. Um, so then you, then you say, okay, what are, what are some of those things that I learned? What are the things I have to think about going into 2021? Okay, well, it's gonna be uncertain, we know that. So so when I think about uh, my grid attributes, I'm gonna need a little bit of courage. If I, if I feel like I'm low on courage, I should probably try to develop that a little bit. I'm definitely gonna need adaptability. Um, perseverance, okay, I have some goals. Obviously, my goals might've been derailed in January, 2020. Okay, now what do I do? What are the things I can do to persevere and affect my goals in 2021, no matter what happens. How am going and how I'm going how am I going to adapt mm-hmm. to do that? I think an enormously important, in fact, if I were to, if I were to scale them, I'd th- probably say one of the most important attributes that we can all focus on in 2021 is open-mindedness. The closed mind is is not driven because the closed mind is certain. And and certain minds aren't curious and they're not seeking what's next. They are not seeking what could be. Um, and if if 2020 taught us anything is that we don't know. You know, we don't know what's coming down the pike. And if we're open minded enough to start understanding, okay, I'm going to take. Now, this is a passive. It's a passive act. It's you know, optimism is. I would I would call optimism a proactive uh, pathway. Um, open mindedness is a passive pathway where you're saying, okay, I am I am going to be open to other ideas, viewpoints, situations, mm-hmm. so that I can try to look at them from a from a from a positive, not, not necessarily positive, but a, a proactive and and um, an effective lens. Um,
1: but there's a difference between making that decision and actually effectuating it, right? You there can is. say I'm open-minded, but then you find yourself in a situation and you're very much not open-minded. Yeah,
2: yeah. Um, and, and I think we all found ourselves in, in that situation in 2020. And again, I come back to this idea of asking questions. It's all, ultimately it comes down to the questions we ask ourselves. If we find ourselves in a situation where we're feeling like, um, uh, okay, this person I'm talking to is seems to be of complete opposite political beliefs than me. Um, how might I be wrong? How might what what might this person be feeling? Mm-hmm. You know that I what might this person be experiencing that I'm not? You know, um, you start to tap into empathy certainly, um, but again, empathy is, is empathy is about feeling what that person feels. Um, that's a that's a little bit more of a leap, you know, but you can certainly start um, having a, having a perspective without necessarily feeling and and Curiosity. I think that's. Curiosity, curiosity is the buttress to open-mindedness. Absolutely, mm-hmm. but I say, you know, some people are more naturally curious than others, and most most of those people are automatically open-minded. Um, so, I, so I, the reason why I didn't put curiosity there is because I think open-mindedness can be accessed by almost anybody. You know, just by asking the right question. Can I just let me give this person, this situation, this um, this event, mm-hmm. a chance, and and let me start seeing what might be. Uh, what might be positive about that? Let me see it in a different light. You know, um, take myself out of my own perspective. If I'm not um, this, you know, you know, forty-seven year old, you know, male former Navy SEAL author living in Virginia, if I'm not that person, right, then how does this look, yeah. right? And that's those are really those are really powerful questions to ask, and and ones that can help open open your mind quite a bit. The best news of all is we all have uncertainty and challenge and strife in our lives. And those are wonderful crucibles inside of which we can start understanding ourselves. Yeah. Next up
1: is storytelling superstar, Joanne Molinaro, AKA the Korean vegan in an excerpt from episode 632, where we trace her path to a plant-based diet, the many ways in which food and social justice advocacy intersect, and the importance of humanizing the immigrant experience, specifically through her beautiful and moving videos on
3: TikTok.
4: My biggest value is compassion. I feel like, It is one of the most underrated characteristics in the world. And I feel like people think that compassion is weakness or compassion is crying or too much empathy. And for me, compassion is strength. It's the strongest thing that you could do is to be compassionate. So fundamentally the Korean vegan in its current version is about compassion in every way.
1: Mm, What role do you think that hardship and challenge plays in in the kind of cauldron that those formative experiences that lead to like the kind of resonance that you need to understand your own story and really grasp the power that it might hold to be transformative for others.
4: So I always think about sort of the crucible, right? I was actually thinking about that this morning. I was like, that is...
1: You were thinking about a lot of things this morning. Oh yeah, well this is, like, I was oh. Just this morning, you know, <laughs> like among the 7,000 other things you said you were thinking about this morning. Well, I, was, I was running,
4: I was running this morning and I was like, this is what my brain goes through. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but I was thinking about the crucible and how that's such a great metaphor for my life, right? And how I had to go through this period of what I call the dark ages, right, of my life and in order to come out and be the person that I am today. And what that period in my life has afforded me is, again, the fundamental of the Korean vegan, which is compassion. The most important thing I feel like in the whole world is compassion. and. I can now relate to a lot of different kinds of pains and struggles because I went through what I did. And what I'm trying to convey through the Korean vegan is the sense of, hey, I understand your pain. I understand your struggle. And if I don't, then I'm here to listen to that struggle. I'm here to be a safe space for your pain and your struggle. Because you need to feel like you're listened to and that you will be safe if you are going to be empowered to execute on that next chapter of your life, to come out of that crucible stronger. And you know, my own story is really that went through really difficult time in the earlier years of my life and now I'm deliriously happy and always seeking out the pockets of joy in every day and I don't know that I would be able to appreciate joy the way that I do without having gone through what I did in that crucible. You know, like sometimes you have to fail in order to be your best version of self Mm. at some point in the future. So don't be so afraid of failure. That's a necessary component to the crucible. You know, you gotta go through some of that in order to know where you're going to succeed and really shine. And that's certainly something that resonates with me a lot is thinking about, wow, I've kind of had my finger in a lot of different things. And maybe that's the reason I'm Joanne and nobody else is. I mean, it sounds very trite and banal in some respects, but it's also simply beautiful. I want to leave this place more wonderful than it was when I came into it. And I don't right now sitting here today, thinking about when this podcast will be airing. (laughs) I'm not sure that that's me as a lawyer You know, Mm -hmm. I really don't think that makes sense. I think that the feedback that I've received over the past, you know, seven to eight months is no, I can do a lot more in that regard as the Korean vegan. And I don't even know what that is right now because it hasn't seen its full potential.
1: In a powerful addition to the Coach's Corner series, Olympians Chris Houth and Caroline Burkle joined me in episode 595 for a roundtable discussion on the power of endurance training as a tool for self-actualization. It's really stuck with me. Here is a
5: slice of that conversation. To speak more towards the purpose, my Enjoyment lies 100% in helping others get that sort of deep understanding of their why or their purpose or their path. I mean, the biggest frustration that many athletes that come to me have is that I keep telling them, it will appear for you. Do not try to force it. You know, you can't manipulate your life path and they don't wanna hear that. And it takes a few years and then they'll come back and go, you know what? You're sort of right back then. I'm ready to take that journey now. Right, but but my power
1: meter says this, Chris, and (laughs) I needed to say this.
5: (laughs) Yes, but the only way it's going to say that is if you let go and let you know. It's like we know from swimming. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like whenever we're too tight on today, this set is gonna be so intense. Like you try to get yourself mentally ready for it. And then you get there and you're three or four repeats in and you're nervous and you're not swimming well and your walls are awful. And you're just like chopping through the water. And then it's like, what am I making such a big deal out of this? Mm. And then slowly you return into what you're capable of. And Mm -hmm. that's the hardest part that dichotomy, yeah, caring enough for the result and the outcome, Uh but also letting go enough for letting the result and outcome to happen for you. The Eckhart Tolle, yeah, (laughs) that's literally
6: my favorite. You know, (laughs) right now I'm living in a space of of possibilities on both sides of everything, like both things can be true, and you know, I don't um, work with. Older athletes like you do, but the younger generation, these teenagers, it's the same thing. It's like this: I don't want to let go of that control because if I let go of that control, then mm. I'm gonna fail. I have, you know, then then my confidence will be will you know go down the drain. All of these other things that people just hold on so tightly to, yeah. and to let go is such a physical um, experience too mm. that you have to experience through your body, which I'm a big fan of. of just that whole conversation. But I think we try to use our minds to to wrap around that to where it's like, I'm just gonna let go with my mind. And then yes, we can let go with our minds, but then we're just, our bodies are still tense and our minds are trying to let go and and conceptualize this thing that we haven't actually experienced through our whole physical being, which I think quarantine has allowed people to tap in to themselves in a different way because they don't have that physical outlet in the same way. Um, So they have to release physically through other Modalities,
1: right. you know? I think that that's a, 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 an appropriate kind of place to segue and to think about not just working out, but working in, mm-hmm. which is kind of what we've already been talking about, but also this idea of, of showing up is not enough. Like where is the intentionality that you're bringing to what it is that you're doing? And of course, this is something that's applicable to any athlete, how they're approaching their training regimen but in life too whatever yeah. it is that we're doing particularly now where everything has been upended and it's causing confusion and anxiety and we're all kind of asking ourselves questions about like what why am i doing this like yeah. you know we're all being it's re-evaluating. kind of, yeah we're all yeah.
5: everybody's reevaluating in their own way right now yeah, but that's part of what I go into there. And that is, you know, once you have your purpose and your clarity, you can show up with intention um, because you're not questioning the goals. Mm-hmm. You're not questioning the path. Now you can focus all your attention on executing the next workout, the next day at work, this project to the best of your ability because you're not wondering, well, why am I? You don't want to be asking, why am I doing this? That takes everything that you have in that workout or in that project or that vacation with your family, you show up with intention too. Like if you start wondering why am I here? Mm -hmm. You're not gonna have a good vacation. You're not gonna have a good workout. You're not gonna have a good workout work outcome. And so the big thing there is once you've, have the bigger picture, the purpose. And once you have the clarity, which is what I call the coaching, the path, the manual, the sort of map, then you can execute the workout properly. You can execute your training without wondering, why am I doing this? How is this gonna help me? Is this keeping me on my path towards my desired outcome? and. Is this what the coach and I discussed? It's all been laid out already. And we know that from swimming, we're just so ingrained in this that we do. Well, of course these 400 IMs are helping me swim my 400 IM better. Of course, this set of 200s with the middle 100 fly is helping me swim my 400 IM better. But in the endurance training world or in just in the work world, if you don't know where you're heading and why you're doing it, the quality of your work is always going to be limited because mm. you're just constantly wasting cognitive energy cognitive load as they call it on other things in order to make it more intentional and clear for you once you have that out you can hit flow you can you're right mm-hmm. in the moment because you're not worried about all the other things because they've been clarified for you mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the scaffolding is set and what i mean by that is when we start training especially as masters athletes not when we're younger but as the training is a scaffolding. What happens inside that scaffolding is unique to everybody. Mm. I might be doing a lot of mental work. Other people might be doing physical work. Other people are doing spiritual work. The training is the placeholder mm-hmm. and what's being rebuilt in that building. Is it a complete rebuild? Is it some sort of remodeling, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? but. This, the training sets up the opportunity every day to spend time with yourself. And you might not want to go in that day, you might yeah. just sort of, you know, do a little paint job. But other days, you're like knocking down walls and you are doing some serious work inside, and the tears come or the aha moment comes, and you're like, wow, <laughs> I hadn't realized how badly I'm avoiding. Mm. Or, you know, you're listening to a podcast and something. You say, for example, just trigger something, boom, pause the podcast, keep rolling Mm -hmm. and just work with that sentence or with that emotion that just came up. But again, I think it's important that that curiosity sets up the training, the scaffolding, Mm -hmm. so that you have an opportunity every day or every few days, if you're not training every day to sort of do that working in and working out.
1: When vegan transcontinental runner, Hella Sidibe ran across America, I was instantly taken by his incredible energy and immediately got to work to book him on the show. We spoke of his four plus year run streak and why mindset and service are key to his success. But more than anything else, it's Hella's infectious positivity that makes this one of the best of the year. Here's a snippet from our exchange from episode 612.
7: I literally told myself one day, I'm tired of making excuses. I gotta do something that I can hold myself accountable for. And then fitness comes to your mind, you're an athlete. And I said, hella, whenever you tell yourself you're gonna go to the gym for a week straight, you go two, three days, you tap out. And I said, what is something that I'm afraid of? Running hit me immediately. So playing division one, even at the pro level, running, I was always afraid of it. Um, at UMass Amherst, the track team used to look at us. Are you guys the UMass track team? You guys run so much. Our coach was very proud, uh, me. he rest in peace, Sam Cook. I uh, was very proud to say, you guys are gonna be the fittest team in the country. So anything you do, any mistake on the line, we want to play top teams the day before he makes us run. So I was fitness test, I was afraid of it. I couldn't sleep the night before. I, always play, I could play 90 minutes, no problem. Because with soccer, you're heading 50-50 ball, you're attacking, you're defending. It's not just solely focused on running. So I, I, told him, I asked myself, what are you afraid of? And running hit me and I said, you know what? I'm gonna go face my fear of running. Let me just go 10 minutes a day for two weeks and zero pressure. It doesn't matter if 10 minutes mean you don't even get to a mile, that's okay. So I told myself that within the first week I fell in love with it immediately. So I ran to Alexa Torres, my fiance. I was like, I think I can do this for the rest of my life but I don't wanna get ahead of myself. Let me do this every day for a year. (laughs) Uh So that's how the whole run streak started.
1: Right, so it was really born out of this frustration and a little bit of confusion about what the next
7: chapter was gonna look like. Yes, exactly, exactly. That's how it all started.
1: It's also interesting that your frame on running is through the lens of punishment. You yeah. know, when you are on a sports uh-huh. <laughs> team, it's not run specific. It's like, that's, you know, being told to run is what happens when you get in trouble
7: Literally. or, you know, it's yeah. it's like the stick, if you, you know. If you ask teammates of mine, I get so stressed the night before a fitness test. They can see it. They're like, hell, are you okay? I'm like, I just can't stop thinking about that beef test tomorrow morning <laughs> or like the, the Cooper test uh-huh. where you gotta run two miles under 12 minutes. And if you don't make this time, you gotta be in breakfast club, which is extra fitness before the actual practice. And the actual practice has its own fitness in it. So it really got me all, all confused and scared right. and petrified.
1: But you're you super imagine. fit. So when you yeah.
3: started
7: this streak, I think you said you went
1: out and ran 10 minutes or yeah, something it was like 10 that. Minutes but you're a day, that was the goal. capable of doing more than that. Yeah,
7: way capable. And then that 10 minutes didn't even last, it was just the first week I was ended up finding myself running even four miles. But the whole point of that idea of saying 10 minutes a day was to have zero pressure. Mm-hmm. Cause I, I know if I were to tell myself, hello, you gotta run at least five miles a day. That's something at that point in my mentality and, and physical ability for running wasn't, I wasn't something I was kind of capable of, of maintaining but I knew it was something attainable to the 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. So, it was a mental thing. So, that made me feel like, okay, you're doing this with no pressure enjoying. Spring was in the air, it was May 15th of 2017. So, it was just a perfect amount of time for me to be out there. So, that's why yeah. I said 10 minutes. Streaks are so interesting yeah. psychologically, mm-hmm. right? I yeah. think it's
1: really powerful to talk about setting a really low bar if you're contemplating something like that, making yeah. it doable so yes. that's you can actually learn to enjoy it before it becomes too challenging. Exactly, you're going to pull the ripcord before you've even gotten out of the gate. Yeah, but once you develop a little bit of momentum, it becomes like this self-perpetuating thing, yes, right? I, I don't agree. know why that is. It's that thing, and I've said it many times before. When you're going to the gym consistently, it's just easier to go. Or yes. if you're running every day, it's easier get to get it, out get and it, run. And get it done. But if you break that cycle, if you
7: interrupt it oh. even once, Oh and you just create all <laughs> kinds of anxiety and Everything. strain on yourself oh, that I, makes the, it so difficult. Yeah, the starting over the thinking mm-hmm. and all that. So, it, it's it's very true exactly how you said it. Right, yeah. so when you first began this, was
1: the idea of a streak even in your mind or you're just like, I'm gonna go out and run because yeah. I wanna be able to have some control over it was, myself.
7: It wasn't even a streak, it was just two weeks that I needed to do. And the thing is to my, now, I didn't know what streaking actually was for running. I didn't even know it was a thing in the running community. I was so new to the running community. Just for the record, we're not talking about running naked. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we're yeah. Not, yeah. Yes. We're running consecutively. Consecutively, yes. In a row. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's a good point. That's a bad point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I was very uh, ignorant to it, didn't know. And that was really good. I'm glad I didn't know about it because also that would have been oh, people shriek. That's another pressure that I didn't need. Mm-hmm. So I didn't even know and it was just to get out there and I just knew I wanted to do it every day now for a year. Is there a whole world of people who do these streaks out there? I discovered, not document. I think we um, uh, humbly we became um, hella good, uh, like my YouTube channel and with my fiance because it's a team. uh, We became basically the the first people to really put it on the platform of running every day Mm -hmm. and running every day for a year, 365 days. And then now everybody, that we we've actually been doing it, started documenting it and push it out. And which I'm so happy about because I actually am happier for more people who are doing the streak compared to me because a lot of questions comes, oh, he's the lucky one, how is he able to do it? But when I see someone else, I'm like, see, it's not just me. Look at yeah. this person did it, yeah, yeah. that person did it, so. When
1: you made your 365 day, your one year streak video, yeah. most of that video
7: was clips of other people out running yeah, in different parts of the world. Exactly, because um, I realized how much running brought us together. And we started building a community and I wanted to show that to people and talk about my story of how running every day changed my life and how people became a part of it. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's all about the people. I think people make the experience. Um, You could do a lot of stuff by yourself, but without the people, I feel like it's right. not the same. Right, well, at first it becomes this
1: journey of self-discovery yes. and, uh-huh. and an exploration of your own personal exactly. potential. But at some point it becomes rote and it has to become about something else in order to maintain yes. its meaningfulness. I agree with you 100%. Yeah. yeah. So you start this thing off, you're doing it, you're not sharing anything about it until you reach a certain point.
7: Yeah. And then you decide to kind of break public yeah. on this whole thing? Actually, that's, a, that's a, a good point to bring up because for me, this was not meant for social media. It was just for myself. And it was um, Caller Bell, my fiance. When I started this running streak, she was like, I think we gotta do a YouTube video. This is really cool. You're running every day and you're going for a year. People need to hear about this. I keep pushing it off. I was always pushing it off. So on day 163, she came to me and she said, hey, do you wanna do a YouTube video on this? So I was like, all right, fine. You keep asking, let's just do it. I had just done my run for the day. So I said, can I just go to the barbershop and get my haircut, get this like nice (laughs) fade, so I can look pretty in front of the camera. And then I went to get my haircut, came back, we did a video and the title was why I run every day, day 163. Mm -hmm. And I started explaining to people. So that video actually sat on YouTube for a month or two Wasn't a lot of views, a couple, maybe 20, 30 views. So one morning I woke up, it was like 2000 views overnight. And I went, I was like, "Belle, look at this. This is really weird. Why is this catching on like this? And then we see 20,000 views overnight and that kind of went in Mm. mini viral. And it it got over 600,000 views really quick. And everybody's asking me, are you still continuing the streak? What's happening? Can you update us? So my DM on Instagram is getting flooded now. Comments on YouTube is getting up. So I said, well, let's keep updating people. And I started doing updates day uh, uh, 254. Day 365, and then we just became YouTubers by mm-hmm. by accident. So right. it's one of the things I was afraid of that turned into passion, and now that turned into something bigger than I ever imagined. Yeah. yeah. And Belle really drives that, right? She, without she's her, she's the not hella good. 100%. Yeah. So basically, she dropped whatever she's doing to help me chase my dreams and goals. Uh-huh. She, was, she never went to school for um, filmography or photography or anything. She just self-taught even editing, just we started doing it together as I'm running and sharing the passion with everybody and she's recording it and she got better with kind of get the content out You can out see the everybody. evolution yeah, from she, the early she, videos yeah, to the present, she, how much she's better she's it. gotten yeah, at so, it. Yeah. And in fact, they be like, oh, this is awesome. We look back and I'm like, <laughs> oh, okay. It yeah. looks, you definitely got so much better. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, it's cool. Uh, and some of those videos have millions of views now. Yeah, a few of them went viral. Yeah. Um, We've had all the the running every day for a year, the the three years and the 1000 days, um, day eight or two. So we had a few of them over a few million views, which was really cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: So you meet the 365 goal, you Uh did it for a year. Mm -hmm. You're like, I'm gonna keep going. Yeah. Um, So how long had you been doing it before the idea of running across America
7: came into your brain? So it was two years in. So after the first year, I knew I wasn't gonna stop. But the thinking was, can I do it again? Because now I know everything to expect the season because the goal is to be outside no matter the circumstances, raining, sunshine, snow, I have to run outside. If I go run on a treadmill, it won't count. It's extra run, but it's not counting toward my streak. Mm -hmm. I have to be outside. That was my biggest goal. So after that second year coming up, you knew what to expect. So it wasn't as joyful to the first year. Everything was new first year. You're like, whoa, this is happening, new discovery. And I got hurt the, the second year. So, but in the second year, it really hit me quick. Hella, this is bigger than yourself. You prove to yourself you can run every day for a year. You're going on year two. That's gonna be a daily routine. Do it for something that's bigger than yourself. Mm -hmm. So, and I realized quick how running is a privilege that not everyone has. And I wanna use that privilege of mine to do it for something greater. So, the ideas of doing it for things, even doing races, I I don't care about my own PR numbers. Mm -hmm. I wanna have a reason to go fight for So, if I'm dying out there, I'm thinking about why I'm running. So, I'm sitting home one day and, came out of the shower and I said, I think I wanna run across the country. Has anyone done that? And again, I thought I was gonna be the first one. I have no idea, (laughs) clueless. Uh And she looked at me, she goes, oh no. Cause she knows when I try to do something now at that point I have to do it. Mm -hmm. And her, um, she's like, all right. She started doing research for me. And then that's when we discovered Robbie Ballinger. Right. And um, that's how the idea of running across the country came up after year two, when I said I I needed to run across the country.
1: Olympic runner, award-winning writer, poet, filmmaker, and dear friend, Alexi Pappas, joined me on episode 579 to discuss the courage required to blaze your own path, as well as the self-belief needed to set audacious goals, and in a display of vulnerability, how healing her past trauma taught her to thrive and find the joy in the journey. Here's a powerful clip from that conversation. So much of your life was premised on differentiating yourself from your mom, like out of a fear that you might, you know, follow in her footsteps in a certain way. And I would imagine that you felt like you had, you know, escaped that in some way, but as the, you know, op doc, shows and and as you talk about in your book, like nonetheless, you have this experience with depression in the aftermath of the Olympics, you know, most acutely. Um, it must've been terrifying when that was visited upon you. You must've thought like, oh my goodness, like am, am I gonna end up like my mother?
0: Yeah, it was, I mean, when I started having, um, I, first of all, I didn't have the vocabulary that I tried to share in the op doc. I didn't have that vocabulary when I started experiencing these mm-hmm. symptoms. So I was in total denial that I was sick because I, I didn't understand that your brain can get injured just like your knee. I just, I didn't understand that. And so I was of the mindset as I had always been in my life that I needed to keep pressing forward and, and, fix all on my own whatever it was that i was feeling to the point where i wasn't sleeping but i tried to force myself to sleep and you know that's it's called falling asleep for a reason you have right. to let it right let it happen you, and you,
1: being a good um, type a athlete you're trying to will
0: everything into yeah. existence and then i started to have these even darker thoughts and that's when i felt like i understood my mom in a way that i never wanted to understand her like I, it's you have these thoughts that like you want to die, and I don't think you really want to want to die, but the thoughts say otherwise, and that's when mm. you're, you're sick. Um, and it was terrifying because I always, I've always been afraid my whole life for the moment that, um, that that might happen to me, and and where that fear came from was I have a photo book of her um, when she was like teenager, and she looked really happy. And I was like, there's no way, I just don't believe that this 16 year old knows what's gonna happen to her. And that was so scary. Cause I was like, is it gonna, am I a ticking time bomb? Does it just happen to people? Um, And you know, her brother took his own life, like it runs deep in her family. So I just knew that there was a possibility. And then when it did, but before I understood that there was a way to get better, I thought that that was just my fate that like, mm-hmm. that was, it now happened to me. And because the narrative I was told about her was she just had to go. Like she just, she was so sick that she had to go. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, I guess I'm so sick that maybe I have to go because what I don't know what else there is. Wow. Um, and that's so embarrassing, honestly, to share because I don't feel that way anymore, but I didn't understand. And I think it's sad that, even someone who was susceptible to these things, you know, my family history was public, right? There was no prehab, if you will, if you want to call like, if we want to use this body comparison of the brain, is a body part. I had no prehab. I had no preparation to deal with this, and it wasn't until my my dad, because of his experience with my mom, made me get help, that I met a doctor, Doctor Arpea, who told me very simply that I was sick and that my brain had a scratch on it and that it could get injured like any other body part, but it could also heal like any other body part. And suddenly everything, like it literally turned around in a day. Not, I wasn't happy, but I believed that I could be on a path to healing
5: Mm
0: -hmm. um, and that I could commit to it just like I would an Olympic dream. Mm -hmm. We are in a place where we can accept, I think as as a world that, elite athletes and high achievers can have these mental injuries, these mental illnesses. But I think the most important thing now is like, what do we do about them? And that was something that I found. um, I find that sometimes, you know, we point fingers at the like, the pinnacle institutions that we're chasing. But actually, I truly think that this kind of education or shift has to happen much younger and on a more, universal level, not just at those pinnacles. So what
1: would that look like if you were in charge and could put those things in place?
0: Well, let's look at body, um, the way we've approached the body and like how that's progressed over the last, let's say 10 years, like 10 years ago, I don't think my dad or my friend's little sister would have seen a PT for their body Uh, without having an injury, meaning like regularly take care of their body. And so just looking at that world, we've come a long way to accepting that our body is something not only elite athletes should take care of, but everybody should take care of and that we should take care of it before it's a problem. Ideally, if you are able to have that kind of support and it's not, um, there's just like systems and, you can always you can get that kind of help if you can and need it, right? And I think with mental health, the the comparing it to healing an injury is so simple to me and makes so much sense. So, what it would look like to me is accepting honestly that our brain is a body part and it can get injured. And when it gets injured, just like when we break our leg or feel something strange in our leg, we have no shame about sharing that Mm -hmm. something is off and we get help and we know where to get help. And it's either built into the system that we're in, like a team might have a physio, they might have a psychologist too, or someone can refer you to their favorite physio or their favorite psychologist. Like there's just more accessibility, just like there is in like the PT world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then we get that help and we are as kind to ourselves as we are hard on ourselves, knowing that it's not gonna resolve overnight. Like, nobody is demanding that somebody's broken leg heal tomorrow. And so why are we demanding that somebody's depression heal tomorrow?
1: We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. Meditation has been a recurring theme on this podcast, dating back to its beginnings. And in conversation always leads people to asking me about the best way to begin. There are no shortage of modalities, of resources and apps available. I have experience with many of them, but my mainstay, I have to say, the one that I have found most useful is waking up. It's this unique treasure trove of wisdom that has become so important to my daily routine that the app finds itself right in the dock of my phone for immediate fingertip access. Beyond its robust catalog of daily meditations, it's also this extraordinary library of mindfulness resources that go well beyond the strictures of meditation with courses on stoicism, cognitive behavioral therapy, time management, procrastination, as well as thoughtful conversations with leading scholars on everything from psychedelics to happiness. It really is one of the most worthy investments you can make in yourself. And listeners of the show can get 30 days to try Waking Up for free. Plus, you'll save $30 on the in-app price. If price is a concern, Waking Up offers the app for free, astonishingly for anyone who can't afford it. You can find the links on their website to get a full scholarship right now. Just go to wakingup.com slash richroll to start your free month today. That's wakingup.com slash richroll. Organizational psychologist, Harvard alum, and New York Times bestselling author of Think Again, Adam Grant graced the podcast way back on episode 580, sharing sage advice on how to engage with others who see the world differently, finding joy in being wrong and embracing the art of rethinking. Prepare your noodle for this one. Right, so the idea, and this was the subject of this New York Times opinion piece, basically that came out the other day. Um, The idea being that you approach these conversations rather than from the paradigm that you outline in the book, which is as prosecutor, as preacher, or as politician, but rather lead with curiosity, ask a lot of questions and receive the answers to those questions without judgment, but rather more curiosity.
8: That's the goal. Is that that accurate? Yeah, I think that's a great summary of of both the mindset of approaching this like a scientist and saying, look, I'm not gonna preach that I'm right. I'm not gonna prosecute you for being wrong, but I'm also not gonna be a politician and just tell you what you wanna hear to try to campaign for your approval. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna, as a scientist, I'm gonna say, you know, Rich, this is totally fascinating to me that your beliefs are so different from mine. And I genuinely want to understand them better. Mm-hmm. And if you could help me make sense of how this works and how this played out. And then, you know, I also want to understand, yeah, I'm sure I have some beliefs that are wrong. I'm, I suspect you also do too, right? Nobody, nobody's omniscient. I'd love to understand what kind of information would lead you to consider changing your mind. And I'm also thrilled to talk about what might change my mind. And then the hope is we're both going to find out that our knowledge was incomplete through this conversation. And of course, it doesn't work if that's a tactic, right? Because the mm-hmm. other person will see right through it. But if, if you adopt what counseling psychologists call motivational interviewing, and you really try to understand the person's reasons for change, uh, and what would lead them to consider shifting their opinion a little bit, then you might surface information that would lead them to change their own mind. Right, so let's
1: dig into that a little bit deeper, but maybe we can start with elaborating a little bit more on this
8: prosecutor, preacher, politician uh, rubric that you've set up here. The original idea comes from a colleague of mine, Phil Tutlock, who's studied political psychology and social psychology most of his career. And Phil observed that in decision-making, in judgment, we spend a lot of time thinking like preachers, prosecutors, and politicians and we're usually not aware of it when we're doing it. A preacher mindset is essentially believing that you've already seen the light and now you have to go and proselytize to everybody else and get them on board. So you're you've drunk the intellectual Kool-Aid and now your your job is to serve it. A prosecuting mindset is more about proving everyone else wrong and winning your side of the case. And then a politician mindset is, is really about saying, okay, I've got some constituents here and I need to lobby for their buy-in. I want their support. And my big worry, Rich, was when I learned about this framework, I thought, okay, preaching and prosecuting, stop those stop you from thinking again. Because if I know I'm right and I'm sure you're wrong, I don't need to budge in any of my opinions or mm. any of the knowledge that I, I hold. I just need to convince you to do that. And in politician mode, we see people sounding a lot more flexible, but it's really just adjusting what they say to fit in. It's not actually changing what they believe internally. And that, that's just basically flip-flopping.
1: Yeah, I think I, I fall mostly into the,
8: the politicking camp as a- Really? Uh, as a, I'm surprised to hear you say that. Really? Why would you say that? Well, I would have guessed, just because of the way that you've inspired so many people, I would have guessed that, that preaching might be the default of those three for you. Uh,
1: Preaching is very uncomfortable for me, I'm much more, Interested in in approval and being liked to a default in in a, in a not so great way. Like I've really made major life decisions based on approval or doing the socially acceptable. I mean, I was a lawyer for over a decade. You know, trying to jam a square peg into a round hole for for way too long, and very reluctant to get out of it uh, out of you know fear of social repercussions and familial expectations and the like. And you know, I I, uh, I I would sit in depositions or in hearings and just see the gray and everything, and just felt like I'm a really bad advocate because <laughs> I, I I really want to appreciate the nuance in all of this, and can't we just all get along? Like I'm conflict averse, I'm a people pleaser and you know i host these podcasts and i want to be challenging in the conversations but also i only have the people on that i respect and admire so i'm sitting here you know and if i'm being honest it's like i want adam to like me i want him to respect me you know that's that's like you know just calling myself out in a in a vulnerable way over like my own motivations <laughs> and so i i spent a lot of time thinking about that but i also i i want to throw like a little bit of a test case out out to you um so I've been vegan for about 14 years now, and I guess for better or worse, part of, that's part of my identity. And I've spent a lot of time thinking about how I, um, how I, you know, embody that ethos, how I carry that message, how I advocate, you know, for something that I believe in, and you know, I've realized that for my own personal you know, makeup, I don't feel, uh, it doesn't feel natural to me to be a preacher about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not interested in taking other people's inventory and criticizing their decisions. I don't think it's effective. Uh, and I kind of settled into uh, a mode that's a little bit outside of your paradigm, which is this idea of, of of being kind of a lighthouse. Like if I live my life well and equip myself as an athlete, as uh, you know, somebody who is excelling intellectually, mentally, emotionally, and just living well, it acts more like a magnet or um, a tractor beam that will bring the, the receptive audience to me who might be willing or interested to hear about it. And it also goes back to 12 step and how I got sober and the tools that I learned in the program, which are all about not giving advice, but just sharing your experience. And so I'm curious about how that fits into how you think about these ideas of of influencing people and getting people to kind of open up their minds and consider different concepts.
8: Wow, I think that's brilliant. I'm kicking myself now because if we had had this conversation a year ago, I, I would have written that in to think again.
1: Oh well, now I'm bummed. I, I wish I'd met you earlier. <laughs> it's, uh,
8: it's, it's, it's not my uh, it's not my idea though, but it's just but,
1: something that seems to work better than any of these other three options. Although
8: it doesn't start with a P, you know, you can come up with a <laughs> Yeah. No, with for it, it. It's it's not alliterative. Um, yeah. And I, I, no, I think I think you articulated it so beautifully though. It's uh, there's there's a lot to react to there. So I want to I want to uh, double click on a few things you said. Let's just start with the lighthouse idea. I think that that might be the most compelling workaround that I've, I don't even want to call it a workaround. That's, uh, I think that's not doing justice to it. It's the most compelling solution I can think of to the tension between what I guess was my preferred alternative to preaching, prosecuting, and politicking, which is thinking like a scientist and the need, if you want to influence people in the world to do some preaching. And I've, I've always been uncomfortable with that tension because so we, I guess I, I should take a step back and just say thinking like a scientist is is what I would love for more people to do more often. And I, I don't mean you have to go and <laughs> wear a white coat all the time or carry around test tubes or even own a microscope, right? What I mean is that the just the broadest idea of, of science is the pursuit of knowledge and truth. And if your identity is anchored in being a scientist, it means that You don't have to stick to a a certain set of beliefs at any one time. You want to find out what's going to be effective or what the right way is to live your values. And that means when you form an opinion, it's a hypothesis. You can go out and test it. You can observe. You can interact. You can run experiments. And the hope is that you're as excited to find out that you were wrong as you are to prove that you were right. Mm -hmm. Because either way, uh, you've you know you've you've potentially learned something, and I would argue even you learn more when you discover that your hypothesis was false, than when than when you validate it. And and yet, Phil Tetlock, when when I talked to him first about this framework, saying, okay, I I want everyone to think more like scientists, he said, well, yeah, but sometimes you have to talk much more like a preacher in order to be heard. Yeah, uh, you know, just look at any pundit on TV or any leader who gives an inspiring speech. And I've never liked that as, as something that you have to do. And I think you, you just gave an alternative, which is to say, okay, I can think like a scientist. I can test in my own life, whether I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be at my best in, you know, in an Ironman when, when I go vegan, right? That's mm-hmm. an experiment you ran. Mm-hmm. And then once I do that, if I'm willing to share what I've learned from that, and I talk about that publicly, Uh, I don't have to tell other people to do it. I don't have to preach about it. I'm just telling my story and that will draw people to me. I just think that's ingenious.
1: Author, Shrimu, plant-based cheese founder, and my in-house guru and better half, Julie Pyatt, AKA Srimati, joined me not once, but twice in 2021, dropping wisdom on the importance of celebrating humanity, cultivating relationships, and igniting intimacy in long-term partnerships. Here's a slice of the spiritual pie we baked on episode 637.
9: Humans are amazing. (laughs) Is that it? (laughs) Expound. No, just because um, I really feel and you really feel, I mean, there's so much beauty in humanity. I mean, humans are just, you know, they're all individual and unique and resilient and creative and courageous and empathic and loving and feeling. And, um, you know, we often hear narratives that are tearing down the negative or sort of highlighting all the horrible things that are going on in our world. And as we know, we are powerful creators and where we put our attention is what expands. And so um, I feel that, you know, through this uh, this timeout that we've all gone through in the last couple years, uh, we've even come to appreciate our friends and our community even deeper, not only our, our close friends, but also our extended communities, um, even on social media or through the podcast or through different mentorship groups or, or the srimu community. And um, I think that there's wisdom and power and intelligence in highlighting the beauty of humanity, because there's a lot more beauty than what um, is brought up for uh, for review or you know to be considered, um, and I think it's human, sort of the human um, tendency to uh, feel justified pointing out everything that's wrong. And then there's something within the personality or the ego that feels like, oh, you know, see, I'm right. How wrong is that? And this is so wrong Mm -hmm. and this is so wrong. And so um, I just think it's a wonderful time. We're all alive in a body. Hopefully if you're listening to this podcast and you're breathing, you have the privilege of being alive, the privilege of being connected to this podcast and um, just to highlight the the beauty of humanity and how all of us have something so meaningful to bring and offer and share.
1: Yeah, wealth is the company you keep. And I've been doing that and it's been great. And I feel like I'm in a much better place than I was last year at this mm. time. So I feel good.
9: It's beautiful to see.
1: Hmm. What else about humans being amazing?
9: <laughs> um, I mean, I think one of the great opportunities that we have is to uh, exercise the will to connect in the face of forced separation. When you see agendas that are operating in the in, in our world that are seeking to separate, we have a choice we can um find a neutrality and understanding that everything in life is sacred. Everything comes from divine, even the things that you consider dark or the things that you don't agree with. And if we can sort of relax into that direct connection with our own source consciousness, we can stop comparing and trying to analyze a situation into an intellectual place where we feel safe with it. And so the work is, is, is in the face of separation, can we be neutral and open and in awe and wonder and just allow all things? And it's more of a not this or that or either or, it's about a yes and, both things can be true in certain, from a certain perspective. And life is full of billions of, of different kinds of uh, life forms that are completely unique. So how could one opinion or one lens know that it is the way for all things at all times? Um, I think it's just the fear of the personality that wants to create a box that gives some certainty. And I think, many of us know and realize now there is no certainty. And there there really wasn't ever certainty in that way, but we had things sort of in a place where we could be in that illusion. So it really is what you and I just described is in the constriction coming into the present moment, activating neutrality, understanding that everything comes from a sacred place. It is all part of the play. And we can um, find a way uh, in tr- into transformation by going into the separation, rather than running away from it or turning away from it, we can have the courage to go into the experience with that neutrality. And if we're lucky, we're probably gonna learn something or expand or soften or experience something that maybe we never imagined.
10: Mm-hmm.
1: Expert meditation and spiritual teacher, three-time podcast guest, and author of one of my favorite daily doses of inspiration, Knowing Where to Look, Light Watkins joined me on episode 603 to talk about cultivating intuition and more importantly, how to have the courage to
11: trust it. I remember being 29 years old in my kitchen in Harlem and saying to myself, I'm going to follow my heart no matter what. And um, after watching the Chris Rock movie. <laughs> takes what it takes, man. No, that's, that
1: story is where you talk about um, this idea of, of wiggle room. Like even mm. if you feel like you're on a good path for yourself, like not holding on too tightly to it and always making room to be malleable. To be so inspired. Can, yeah, yeah, so that you can be available for the magical
11: opportunity of going to India, or, yeah. you know, in the case of your story, and it's not about you know, because some people may look at the hair that and go, "Well, that's just you not committing to whatever you said you were going to do, mm-hmm. right?" And and I would I would refine that and say well, it's really your feeling about your path, whatever that is, whether you have language for it or not, is mm-hmm. always going to be there, but the day to day plans may change about how you get there or what what occupation or what family lifestyle choices you have to go through in order to get there. And so that's where you wanna be malleable and be open to inspiration, Not not in questioning the ultimate goal or plan. You really can't go wrong. If you just keep following whatever, you're sure. But you,
1: you also can't expect to be smiled upon by you know perhaps your your peers and your colleagues because no, it that takes will, you
11: completely away yeah, from it, social
1: proof. You're going to look like a dilettante. <laughs> yes. you know what I mean. Like oh, this guy just goes from one thing to the next. You can't yes. really like stick with anything. Mm-hmm. Did you read uh, David Epstein's book Range? No. So it's a very interesting kind of study of a variety of people who have excelled in in different fields from science and education to athletics and art, et cetera. And it belies this sort of Malcolm Gladwell myth of the 10,000 hour rule Hmm. and demonstrates that there are those people, of course, the Tiger Woodses and people like that. But by and large, most people who are fully expressed and excelling at the highest level of their, you know, specialized field are people who earlier in life did lots of different stuff, and mm. and were the people who just really couldn't commit to anything. And as a result, they develop this robustness of experience. That back to that idea of in retrospect, you know, all the dots line up, make perfect sense with where they end up. Mm-hmm. But they're people of varied interests and many different passions who develop that capacity early to be malleable and flexible, to have that. Wiggle room. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's those people that we look at now as lazy dilettantes who, you know, ultimately it's reframing that and saying, well, and you talk about this, like, how do you suspend judgment in the book? Like, maybe they're like, you know, we should look at this a little bit differently. Perhaps they're in their exploratory phase and they're going to be magnificent and amazing and world changing and something that they finally latch onto later in life.
11: Yeah, I, I there is a story in there about how <laughs> I talk about leaving that first job for the reasons that I left and um and then while I was writing I remember the day I wrote that story I was in an Airbnb I think it was in London living out of a backpack didn't own anything still don't own anything yeah. I've got a little money saved up but I had less saved up at the time and I was like you know, compared to my peers I don't really I haven't succeeded I haven't really mm-hmm. done anything uh, you know, that led to the material success that we kind of aspire towards today, but I've never felt more fulfilled. And I realized that the true wealth is the fulfillment mm-hmm. inside, right? And that's, again, this is a living experiment. <laughs> yeah. And it's not that I'm like walking around beaming all the time because I feel fulfilled inside. That's not really what what we're talking about. It's just, it's having us inner security that wherever you are is where you're supposed to be. And if that means you get challenged in certain ways, then that challenge is there for you to learn something new about yourself. And that new thing that you learn is going to add to the feeling tone of fulfillment, right? And so that's the underlying message of this whole path is your path is not leading you to more success or more comfort it's leading you to know yourself better and ultimately to feel your connection with other people. And that could be a very, very treacherous path at some points. It could be incredibly uncomfortable at other points, but the happiness that people tend to look for outside in success is much more temporal compared to what you can feel inside while you're going through all of those other moments and obstacles in life.
1: All right, people, up next is one of the world's leading authorities on the neuroscience of addiction, Anna Lemke, MD, author of two important books, Drug Dealer MD and her newest work, Dopamine Nation. In episode 623, she gave us a powerful primer on why the relentless pursuit of pleasure always leads to pain.
10: For so long, we've had this idea that addiction is a downstream consequence of some Mm. other problem, but addiction is its own problem. You can have a perfect life and get very, very addicted.
12: Yeah,
1: yeah, that's a really important point. You know, I've had conversations with Gabor Mate and for him, it's all about childhood trauma, resolve that you resolve the addiction. I had Johan Hari here for him. It's all about lost connections. connectivity to your friends and your family and your community. And I think those are important pieces in this puzzle, but I'm reluctant to be reductionist about the role that those play in in the, in the broader context of addiction.
10: Thank you so much for invoking those examples, because that shows me that you perfectly understand what I'm trying to communicate here. Because yes, it's true that childhood trauma increases your risk for developing addiction. Yes, it's true that addiction leads to isolation and that the antidote to addiction is social connection in part. But what is so important to understand is you can have the perfect childhood, the perfect parents, the greatest social network, the best spouse, wonderful kids, and you can get really, really addicted. Mm-hmm. And that is so important for people to understand and also healthcare providers, because everybody's sort of looking for the reason behind the addiction, yeah. but there doesn't have to be a reason behind addiction. Addiction just can be on its own.
1: Yeah, I, I yeah, I think that's a crucial point. I mean, I get asked very frequently, like, what do you think caused this? Like, what is the source of your addiction? and you know, I'm heavily indoctrinated in in twelve step, and I'm sure I have some biases around that. But one of the things that you learn is that it's fine if you want to psychoanalyze you know analyze that aspect of your origin story, but ultimately it doesn't avail you with the tools for how to live today and how to move productively forward. And you know, there is an argument to be made that it's sort of, uh, you know, a fool's errand to spend too much time on that.
10: Yes, insight can be the booby prize. Yeah. Yeah, no, this is a really um, very, very important concept. And and the, the other reason it's important is because I think we're natural storytellers and we want to rationalize irrational behavior. And so, the first thing that we try to do when we are doing something that's irrational and self and other destructive is to tell ourselves a story or have someone else tell us a story about why we would do that crazy mm-hmm. thing. But and I, if
1: we can solve that equation, then suddenly every everything makes right. sense and you can figure this out. Right, but Ex- it doesn't work no. that way.
10: No, <laughs> no. I mean, I, I have I have had over twenty plus years, countless patients come into my office and say. Dr. Lemke, the reason that I'm addicted to alcohol or I'm addicted to cannabis, or I'm, you know, compulsive gambler is because I'm depressed and anxious and if you would just fix that then I wouldn't have that other problem and what I have to do is say to them you know what I wish that were true but here's the truth number one even if I could magically wave my wand and make your depression and anxiety go away once you're addicted you're addicted and if Mm -hmm. we don't focus on that problem that's not going to get better Um, the other thing is that you know that relationship between psychological symptoms and addiction it's complicated and it's not necessarily that the depression comes first and then the addiction comes. Addiction can lead to depression and anxiety, which is why my first intervention so Mm -hmm. often is to have people abstain. But I'll never forget a patient of mine who said, you know, Dr. Lamke, I realized I was an alcoholic when I got started on an antidepressant, wasn't depressed anymore, but kept drinking. Mm -hmm. That was his aha moment because he was like, oh, I thought I was drinking because I was was depressed. But when I stopped being depressed, I was still drinking.
1: Yeah, that's kind of the genius behind your dual diagnosis clinic, right? It's almost a Trojan horse of just treating addiction because the way you get them in the door um, in a non-threatening way is under the rubric of treating their anxiety or depression, et cetera.
10: Right, yes. Although it's not without effort because people are resistant to that idea, right? They, they, They come in and they want help with depression, anxiety. They see the addiction as a secondary problem and it takes all my powers of persuasion to get them on board. <laughs>
1: yeah, None too happy to be told that you yeah. can't deal with your, you know, right. condition X until we deal with this yes. substance or right. behavioral yes. addiction that you have, yes. and they storm out and yeah. yes. leave a one-star Yelp review or you, something. You,
10: exactly, you, you've <laughs> got it yeah. exactly, you right. understand.
1: <laughs> yeah, if people don't wanna hear that, mm-hmm. you know, it's interesting that that piece, I mean, as a psychiatrist though, you must have Honed tools for how to communicate with people to kind of crack that core
10: yes, and the, the 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 key piece is to be empathic at the same time that you're telling people what they don't want to hear, mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That's
1: tough, that's a tightrope walk. It
10: it is, it is, but I feel like I've gotten pretty good at it. Having teenagers also helps, Mm -hmm. you know, to sort of you, you breathe and you stay calm and you say, you know, I understand what you're saying, right? So the typical sort of validating first, but then you give them kind of the real deal you know what the science shows what my clinical experience shows what i'm asking them to experiment with so that they can gather their own data and see if what i'm saying is mm-hmm. right
1: but on the the data piece i mean this doesn't operate you know in a logical framework it's an emotional framework yes. and timing is so important right like i'm happy to talk sobriety with anyone who's suffering, but I've learned to detach or from any expectations of what they will or won't do. Like people get sober when they're ready to.
10: Yeah, and one of the main things I have to teach my uh, trainees, my fellows is that an essential part of the work that we do is that we have to actually really care about our patients, but there is a point at which you can care too much. And when we're trying harder than the patient is mm-hmm. or wanting it more than the patient wants it, we're not actually
1: helping mm-hmm. them. Then you gotta go to the, the Al-Anon meeting. That's
10: right. Everyone's yeah. gonna, <laughs> well, We have to conduct yeah. our own little Al-Anon session, right. you know, right, right there at work. Cause right. I work with a bunch of young folks, which I can say is one of the most exciting things that's happened in the last 10 years, you know, 10 years ago, I couldn't find a medical student under a rock who wanted to learn about addiction. Now Mm. they're beating down my door, which is really awesome.
1: Yeah, I think it brings up an important kind of broader um, point about culture in general. And this idea that we live in a situation in which there's this asymmetry in terms of how we approach our lives with respect to pleasure and pain. And we organize our lives completely around the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. But as you kind of astutely put in the book, the more that we pursue that, ultimately the more pain that we reap, because these systems require a level of homeostasis that we're constantly trying to avoid. So we're just delaying the inevitable onslaught of pain that that you know we so fear.
10: Yes, absolutely. We live in a world in which we are saturated with dopamine and we live in a culture which encourages us to pursue it. But the ultimate end result of pursuing dopamine is to feel worse than when you started. And and this is really the central message. People are more depressed, more anxious, more suicidal and more addicted than they were 30 years ago. And I contend that one of the main reasons is because of this relentless, Pursuit of pleasure that essentially adjusts the dopamine levels, changes the hedonic or pleasure set point to make people anhedonic, meaning without joy.
1: The godfather of integrative medicine and a true pioneer of health, Dr. Andrew Weil is a legend in the realm of mind body healing. In the 606 drop, we talked psychedelics, fungi food and breath, and the best practices you can adopt to sidestep chronic lifestyle disease.
3: what goes on in your mind really determines and shapes your experience of the external world. And I've applied that very much in my work with patients because I just find over and over again that the root causes of illness are often in the mental emotional mm-hmm. sphere and not in the physical body or they're like they're in both. But conventional medicine has so ignored that, yeah. that non-physical part of ourselves. And I think that's a great limitation.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think, one of the things I appreciate about you the most is just that level of cognizance and emphasis that you put on the mind and your willingness to you know, delve deep into the nature of consciousness. Yeah. And, and these are just anathema in conventional <laughs> medical practice.
3: Yeah, it just doesn't compute. I took a, a one of the most interesting courses I ever took was in medical hypnosis uh, at Columbia University was for physicians. Um, I just, I learned so many fascinating things there. And as a result of that, I made mind body medicine, a, a major component of the integrative medicine curriculum that I developed. And I very frequently refer Patients to mind body practitioners, whether that's uh, hypnotherapists or visualization practitioners or any one of a number of other modalities, because I find these things to be incredibly effective, cost-effective, I mean, even fun for both practitioner and patient. And And relatively
1: free of risk.
3: Totally, and they are so underutilized in Mm -hmm. medicine. And I I remember once I was challenged to a public debate uh, by Arnold Relman, who was the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine. uh, And it was a very publicized event. And I mean, I have never met a more closed minded uh, person. He Uh said his position was all you have to do is show me the evidence, you know, you show me the evidence, blah, blah, blah. So anything you'd show him, he'd say, oh, well, that's not evidence, you know? And one of the questions that I asked him, I said that, you know, the best, research area of what I do is mind-body interactions. There's been 30 years of of studies on that, and and yet these uh, modalities are so mm. underutilized. What would you do to increase their use? And his response was, "There is no evidence for mind-body interactions." So you know, <laughs> I don't know what you can do. Right? With that. Yeah. I mean, how are <laughs> you? How are you? Yeah. There's
1: a a profound hubris around the scientific method. Science is truth. Science is fact. But that overlooks the fact that it's a method. Yeah, It's not a fact in and of itself. It's, it's a means of approximating truth. It's a way to approach or discover truth, but it's also not the sole method and it's flawed. And I think there's so much arrogance around, this is the way that we do it. And that kind of approach is very, dualistic or binary in that you know it's controlling for this variable or 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 this right. and that and obviously we've made un, you know I'm not dismissing it it's like no, well, this right, is the of course. this is the the engine of progress of course but it overlooks the holistic nature of the human body and the True. interplay between all of these very sensitive systems
3: and science and medicine in our part of the world are totally dominated by materialism you know a philosophy that says that The only thing that's real is that which can be seen and touched Mm -hmm. and measured. And that if you see a change in a physical system, the cause has to be physical. Non-physical causation of physical events doesn't compute. It's not allowed for. So you know, in hypnosis, there are so many demonstrations. Like uh, you can touch a person with a finger and and you have them believe it's a piece of red hot metal. And if right. they're in a deep trance, they get an actual blister. I mean, that is non physical causation of a physical event. So, in if you try to get a doctor to look at that or a scientist, oh, it's just a curious thing. Mm. It doesn't have any meaning.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that kind of. Uh makes me think of your interesting ideas around the placebo effect yeah. and, and the way that we kind of think about that backwards.
3: Fortunately, that that's one of the things that's changing now, which is makes me very happy, mm-hmm. but the still the, the most common ways I hear the word placebo used are in phrases like, how do you know that's not just a placebo effect? And the most interesting word there is just, or we have to rule out the placebo effect. Mm-hmm that's what we want to rule in you know the placebo response is pure healing from within yeah. uh, mediated by the mind unmixed up with the direct effects of treatment which are likely to be harmful
1: yeah i think i've heard you talk about um, the fact that in every every kind of double blind trial, yes, uh, if you look at the placebo group, there's always a few people that have experienced the result as All if they had the taken changes, the medication. Exactly. <laughs> and that's the most interesting thing. Amazing of the
3: whole thing. that any change we yeah. can produce with a pharmacological agent can be exactly mimicked in at least some people some of the time by a mind mediated mechanism. So fortunately the change that's happened, and this is the result of these new brain imaging technologies is that now you can show that certain parts of the brain are active when people have placebo responses and this makes it accessible you know and real mm-hmm. uh, to people so i think placebos are being taken much more seriously
1: right because now the imaging science has caught up and neuroscience has progressed to the point where they can provide an explanation that makes sense to the conventional exactly. Kind of
3: community. Exactly. the same thing's happened with meditation. You know, there've been a tremendous number right. of studies of, of very long time series meditators showing different activity in, in different brain areas as a mm-hmm. result. So the fact that you know a meditation practice can actually physically change the brain, I mean, that's really interesting stuff. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. But within that, there's this, Profound, deep appreciation for the mystical. Yes, right. Yeah, which is like my favorite thing to talk oh, about. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, you know? and I suspect that was in in part informed by all these shamans and you know various healing practitioners that you've experienced yeah. over the decades in South America and Asia, et cetera.
3: One of the attitudes that I just can't stand is that when scientists believe that it's their job to make mystery go away. you know It seems to me mystery is an essential aspect of the universe mm-hmm. uh, and that you have to appreciate that and wonder at it. Mm-hmm. Terence McKenna, I once heard say that you know, the bigger you build the fire, the more you're aware of the extent of the darkness. And mm-hmm. uh, I think that's true. And I think that our experience at the heart of our experience is mystery, that stuff that we, can appreciate, but we can't really understand with our mind. Right.
1: There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda DeCadney is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation a groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most. Mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. What does it mean to be human? How do you be a good person? What happens when you die? If you find yourself grappling with these big questions, then my audio experiment with Rain Wilson and Reza Aslan, hosts of Metaphysical Milkshake, back on episode 633 is definitely your jam. Here's a little something to whet your appetite.
12: I believe that everyone has a purpose. I believe this with all of my heart and uh, in a very strong way because as a member of the Baha'i faith, but not just a Baha'i faith, I think anyone who has, I mean, I think that's an answer that applies to both theists and atheists, but uh, as a member of the Baha'i faith, I believe that we are on an eternal spiritual journey, that this, you know, our, whatever our soul or eternal part of ourselves is encased in this flesh tuxedo for 80 or 90 years, we slough it off and we continue our journey Mm. beyond time and space. So while we're here, everyone has a purpose. Now, it it may not be like everyone on planet earth has a purpose like Oprah has a purpose. I mean, it's it's about <laughs> We can't funding, all be Oprah. You know? <laughs> you can't, we can saying. have 7 billion Oprah's on the planet, but I do think that um, this is one of the really exciting tasks is there's a riddle wrapped inside this question, which is our purpose, is to find our purpose. Mm -hmm. And as soon as we found our purpose, we have to be not sure that that's our purpose and we have to keep finding our purpose. So by the time we're 97 and we keel over, hopefully we're all continuously at the very beginning footsteps of this eternal journey toward finding what that purpose is and Mm -hmm. it may shift and change. And so whether you call that you know, God or or the, or the great spirit or the, just the power of the universe or the winds of the cosmos or the mystic connection or whatever you wanna call God, which has become a four-letter word and is a, is a tough concept to dig into, but the winds, the Holy Spirit, the, the winds of the cosmic power of the creative force that surrounds us, that's within us, without us, beyond us, beyond the limitations of time and space, this has a, these winds have a very special... Um, we have a very special relationship with them mm. i believe and it's for it's like a it's it's like when you go sailing i don't know anything about sailing i've barely, i've been sailing like twice but the whole idea that you you tack your sails to try and get the most out of the wind depending on you have a vague you know i want to go toward that island but you may not go directly to the island you may the, the winds may take you off to the left a little bit and then back or you may have to zigzag the wind stall for a little bit you turn on your motor then the winds are pushing you right there but you you are trying to align yourself with those with those wins, and it's it's really it's exciting. Mm-hmm. I think it's a really exciting part of being alive. Maybe the most exciting part of being alive. And this is where I think that young people, especially—I don't know about older people. I mean, older people, we, we get set in our ways, and like Reza said, we've got kids and jobs and mortgages and kind of you know we have a little bit of stuff figured out but especially for this mental health crisis that is afflicting uh kids under under 20 or 30 it, it's it's astonishingly uh insidious and toxic and and fatal and but th- but this this connection to this question um is a big part of helping to use a spiritual tool to solve that mm-hmm. issue to solve yeah. that problem
13: beautifully put Hard agree. Thanks. Yeah. Let me just end the podcast. Hard agree. <laughs> yeah. Boom. The only thing that I'll just say to to people who are listening to this, because I I, I mean, I could have listened to that all day. It's a hundred percent true. For... I, uh, I agree with it a hundred percent. And I have like philosophical and theological reasons why I agree with it and experiential reasons why I agree with it. But what I'll just say is that if you are listening to this and saying, okay, fine, everybody has a purpose. Well then, you know, how do I, am I doing my purpose? How do I know what my purpose is? Um, If you don't know, then you're not doing it. For those people, like, I feel like I am achieving my purpose. Uh, I would say probably you too, Rich, yeah, Rain. I mean, you're doing
12: what your purpose is. I wrestle with it, truth be told, but yes, by and large, I do, you know. Well, I mean, the- It's a constant, for me, a constant, a series of the, use going back to the sailboat metaphor That's like what I was sail yeah. but yeah. The,
13: it, that metaphor is so perfect because everyone everyone who has had this experience will tell you that when the wind is right and your sail is you know exactly where it's supposed to be and you're moving smoothly and I mean this metaphorically not actually on the water, but I mean in life, you know it. Yeah, you mm-hmm. know it mm-hmm. and you always know when you're fighting the wind. Um, so pay attention to that feeling, Yeah. pay attention to that if you're sitting there thinking to yourself, well then how do I know what my purpose is? Are you fighting the wind? Mm. Is that what it feels like? Then you're not pursuing your purpose. Have a mission, not a job. I say this to my students all the time, because I think so many of us pursue jobs. I want to be an actor. That's what my passion is. I want to be a writer. That's where my passion is. That's great. But what's your mission?
6: Mm.
13: You know, your your mission is bigger than the things, the things that you do, right? If you have a mission, then you can have multiple ways in which that mission expresses itself, like acting or, you know, writing or service or whatever the, the thing is. So, you know, if you're sitting there and you're thinking to yourself, what do I wanna do with my life? Tweak that question just a little bit what is your mission in life? Pursue that mission. And I promise you, Doors people, will, open. people mm. will pay you for it, <laughs> you know? Mm. But
1: it's the rare individual who, who has a grip on that, right? I feel like, mm-hmm. especially with young people, like you have to live some life. Like you have to travel, you have to collect experiences. You have to put yourself out there. How yeah. could you possibly, Absolutely. you know, it's not gonna, it's not a thunderbolt thing. I mean, there's always the kid, who you know at age six knows what he or she wants to do, but that's
12: <laughs> that really me. the outlier. Well, this is, yeah. this is what I always say to when I, cause I do some speaking at college campuses and stuff too. And I just tell people like, the 20s are a waste of time. Like, don't even worry about it. Don't try and get it <laughs> yeah. figured out. Like the point of your 20s is to try 12 different mm-hmm. things and fail at nine of them mm-hmm. um, so that you can come out. But there's all this societal pressure of like, that's not urination, by the way. If you're hearing that <laughs> in a microphone, that's a Reza pouring a glass yeah. of water. There's no proof of that. Um but but truthfully, in society right now, you talk to so many college kids and they're so depressed at twenty twenty one because they don't they haven't gotten the perfect internship over the summer and they're not mm-hmm. pre enrolled in the perfect grad program mm-hmm. and they don't have their, you know, their their job. Now, I know it's hard to make a living out there. You know, it's hard to have a career and make a living. It's much harder than in the eighties and nineties when we were, you know, getting our educations. But nonetheless, if you view the twenties as a workshop stage, then it gives you some, you can relax a little bit. But you gotta
1: do some counter-programming around that. You're asking young people to step off the hamster wheel. And that's pretty scary, especially for a kid who's, you know, kind of been on that track where it's like, get into the right college, get the mm-hmm. right job. And mm-hmm. then, oh, if I, if I opt out of that, then life's gonna pass me by. But obviously, you know,
12: it's quite the contrary. Yeah, And I think too, for mission, and we've been on this topic too long, but- Yeah, we're gonna have to pick another The uh, thing. <laughs> uh, I think, here you go, Reza. I just think in terms of mission too, it doesn't have to be grand, you know, like we don't all have to change the world. Your mission can yeah. be, I wanna build beautiful things out of wood. Yeah, and I wanna exactly. have a be- nice family.
13: That's exactly what I mean. Yeah, my mission from a very early age was to change the way that people think through stories. I didn't say to myself, I'm gonna be a writer. I'm gonna be a television producer. You know, I'm gonna be like a podcast host. But all of those are just different Mm. ways of telling stories to change the way that people think. So Mm. those are the jobs that I do. But the mission is something else.
12: Mm. That's great.
1: Beyond politics and religion, few topics are more hotly debated than nutrition. So to help us parse facts from fiction and guide us towards an evidence-based rational model for nutritional health, I convened with my friend, Simon Hill, author of The Proof is in the Plants on episode 638. Here is a tasty morsel.
14: I'm big on diet quality being more important than focusing too much on the macronutrients. The macronutrients can get uh, can be important if you have a very specific goal, uh, and and for example, uh, athletes or bodybuilders, etc. But I think uh, what's more important first is the quality of those macronutrients, the quality of the fat, the quality of the carbohydrates. You know. It's less jelly beans, more black beans. Mm-hmm. Uh, the quality That's of my the protein. quote of yours, by the way. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, you know, where we, there are uh, a lot of people that are very anti carbohydrates, but carbohydrates is a it's an umbrella term, and what matters is where you're getting those carbohydrates from. Mm-hmm. If if they're coming from jelly beans then you're going to run into problems.
1: Right. This idea you know in terms of of kind of falsified narratives out there vilifying all carbohydrates, lumping in you know the black beans with the jelly beans is preposterous or analogizing fruit to diet soda mm-hmm. or soda sugar soda. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um We've talked extensively on this podcast about protein, meeting your protein needs on a plant-based diet. So I don't wanna belabor the point, but I haven't had you here to do it. And you're, you you being a very strong physical specimen, um, I think it's worthy if somebody's tuning into this and isn't familiar with either of us, and perhaps this is their first introduction to some of the ideas we're talking about to at least spend a couple of minutes talking about the big protein question, because it's still, propagates in terms of people who are interested in moving towards a more plant centric diet, but are fearful of what that implies in terms of meeting their protein needs, mm-hmm. especially
14: for you know the active people mm-hmm. amongst that cohort. Yeah, so this uh, was a very uh, large fear of mine <laughs> when I was initially making the changes to my diet. And uh, I always remind myself of that because it's it's Easy to kind of dismiss it and 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 forget that uh, you know the the sort of general school of thought is that you get your protein from animal foods and that plants are missing protein. Mm-hmm. And uh, to
1: this day, when you go to a restaurant or you go to Chipotle, they say, "What's your which what protein do you want on mm-hmm. this?"
14: And uh, yeah, very rarely does that uh, include plant protein. Mm-hmm. Uh, although that's you know it's starting to change. I think the food environment's starting to 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 modify definitely, and, and, and we're seeing you know increases in uh, plant protein options. And I was chatting with Paul Shapiro um, a couple of weeks ago now, and he's doing you know exciting things with yeah, it's micro. Protein. wild what his company is doing <laughs> right now with mushrooms. Mm. Yeah, it's crazy. You know, feeding my, uh, these fungi microbes, uh, potato and uh, sorghum, and then producing this super protein rich uh, food. I tried some as well and uh, it's incredible.
1: Mm, so yeah, I haven't
14: tried it yet. Um, you know, that's 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 certainly the future of food. Uh, but overall, uh, I think there are a few aspects of protein that are somewhat misunderstood uh, and uh, we can perhaps clear up some of that confusion. Uh, the first would be that plant protein is missing Certain essential amino acids, and you know, protein is made up of amino acids. They're the little uh, building blocks, um, and uh, our body can make eleven of them, and the other nine are considered essential amino acids. We we have to get them through our food, and the idea for many decades has been that plants are missing some of those amino acids, uh, and you hear this idea of complete protein. Right and and often uh, you know people speak to quinoa and soy and I think definition here is really important. It's critical to this because I think there's a misunderstanding of what complete protein means. I think most people think okay, well if quinoa and soy are complete proteins, that means that these other plants are missing amino acids. They're inferior. Yeah, or that they're just totally missing something and that's not true. So, all plants contain all nine essential amino acids. They're not They're not missing, there just are some of those plants where certain amino acids are in lower amounts. And so, the definition of incomplete, actually by definition within the science, although it's not used this way in general uh, conversation, is not that an amino acid is missing, it's just that it is in a... Uh, a smaller percentage and if you were to eat only that food for all of your calories, then you might run into some trouble. You mm-hmm. might not consume enough of of a certain amino acid to meet your body's daily requirement. So, you can imagine that that's, that's kind of a useful definition for developing countries, places where there is food security problems and if someone's living on one or two foods, then that's important. But if you're eating a diet where you have a range of an abundance of food options, then really it's not that helpful. And uh, if you're eating, so if you are eating with uh, diversity, you, will, you might be consuming for example, uh, grains that are low in lysine. And look, it's true, if, if you were to eat certain grains and that was providing your 3,000, calories, then you might, you might fall short on lysine. Um, and the same could be said about certain beans. If you eat a certain bean for, for all of your calories, you might fall short on methionine, but beans are very rich in lysine. And when you start adding all these foods into your diet, some might be low in a certain amino acid, but the other food is really high. Right, it's really an
1: academic exercise because almost no one is only eating one food, Correct. unless you're like the spud fit guy who's eating just mm. potatoes for a year, or you, you are in a developing country and there is a, a legitimate food scarcity issue, but almost everybody is eating at least two, three, five, six, seven, ten 10 different foods throughout the course of a day or two.
14: And if you're doing that, you're eating with that diversity and you're eating enough calories, you, you will not run into problems. Will get all of the essential amino acids that your body needs, and anyone can can run a simple exercise. Don't believe me? Download the Chronometer app; it's a free app. Uh, plug in uh, a day of eating, and. Uh, you will quickly see that you will exceed the the 100% recommended amount for all nine essential amino acids. And, and you'll see it's very hard not to <laughs> exceed. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be more challenging to fall short on them than it would be to consume enough of them.
1: All right, people of Landia. we did it. This is the end. And to put a cap on part one of this year's recap is none other than planetary change agent and entrepreneur, Paul Hawken, who joined me back on episode 627 to share his beautiful new book, Regeneration, Ending the Climate Crisis in One Generation. Paul is someone who has indelibly shaped my perspective and my actions when it comes to ecological responsibility. And it's just an honor to close things out with his words today.
15: The root cause of global warming is a massive disconnections between each other, between people, between people and nature and nature itself, which is caused by humans, you know, habitat fragmentation, pollution, acidification of the oceans, you know, and onwards. And regenerating and reversing the climate crisis is really about, reconnecting those broken strands, you know, and that's what the solutions really are, you know, as opposed to sort of standalone techniques or technologies, you know, that's going to fix it. That word fix doesn't even belong in the conversation because it's not an it and you can't fix it. Mm -hmm. The atmosphere is the biosphere. There's the same thing and we, Uh, are part of it and nature never makes a mistake, only we do. So let's look at what we're doing. And regeneration is very much about alignment with the living world, with the way it works and always has. And so, as you said, what we've done conversationally and sort of declaratively and almost imperatively is individuate the problem, which is, this is what you can do or should do. And it's true, those are good things, you know, recycling and use cold water in your washing machine and, you know, try not to drive an EV if you can afford it, et cetera, et cetera. But I think people understand that even if they do them, they know it's not sufficient to the task at hand. And so it actually makes people more disempowered in a Mm -hmm. funny way, even though they're actually participating in a kind of token way. And and then they look to governments, they look to the conference of the parties, the UN framework on climate change. They look for these annual meetings, you know, this one in Glasgow in November for something to happen, you know, like hoping that politicians will get together and solve Mm -hmm. the problem if politicians knew what to do uh, we wouldn't be in the situation we are today, and that's just not going to happen. Not right. to say we gainsay it, but you know. So then you feel like there's this gulf between these huge, you know, meta or institutions, corporations, and governments, and then you as an individual. And that's what, again what regeneration is trying to say. whoa, well, wait a minute, that's not where the that's not where the solution is going to come from. Right. You know?
1: Regeneration is. Sort of bedfellows with this idea of of symbiosis, like how can we live more symbiotically on the planet and and understanding that and really um embodying that begins with really fully embracing and um acknowledging that we are all you know micro systems that are part of a macro system and it's 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 sort of belying the idea that nature's over there and we're over here and we venture into nature and out of nature, and yet you know fundamentally that's just a falsehood because the cells in our body and everything that we're made up of is of course part and parcel of of this environment and in terms of the solution you know once you acknowledge that i think what you begin to understand and what the book kind of does a beautiful job conveying is the idea that the problem is systemic that we can't truly move into uh, you know, this more symbiotic regenerative relationship with the planet until we you know, have some corrective measures with our systems at large, right? There's this gigantic misalignment of incentives across the board, be it by dint of you know, governmental bodies or the tectonic plates of capitalism, all of these forces that the individual feels powerless to have any control over or say over that perpetuate the problem. So, short of revolution, like how are we creating better incentives for the systems that are in play, or how do we create better systems with incentives that could supplant the systems that are leading us astray
15: That, that is the question, and I think that between the individual and you know meta institutions and global institutions is uh, is something else called agency, and agency is sort of over, been overlooked. Um, there is no such thing as an individual. Mm-hmm. That's sort of a, a delusion we wake up with in the morning. <laughs> and uh, but functionally, there's no such thing. And. Every person has agency, it's their family, it's their friends, it's their community, it's their neighborhood, it's their church, it's their synagogue, it's their school, it's where they teach, it's their city, it's their company, uh, colleagues, it goes on and on and on. And we have a network, we're all part of networks. And that is where we have influence and where we can make a difference. And I think a lot of people have felt or come to think that, you know, if we get renewables right, or we do this, we do that, you know. That again, we'll fix it, you know. But like, there's some Archimedean you know, solution, if we pull hard enough, you know, it's gonna, the problem gonna go away. Right. And rather than understanding that the solution is everywhere, it's ubiquitous, it's local, regional, it, it's where agency exists. And that is everywhere on earth with every culture, every society and uh, every country. And so that's the good news, which is that the, 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 that we can solve this, we really can, but we can't solve it if we think someone's gonna solve it for us, mm-hmm. or if we come to believe that individuals are to blame and that they're responsible and they'll solve it. We kind of know that one's not true. Right. Uh, I'm not saying we all have, we don't have personal responsibility, of course we do, but that that, that alone is going to be sufficient. And so w- when we look at the institutions and the, what, the perverse incentives that they have, the economic institutions, the political institutions, they are all extractive. That is to say, every institution that we've come to know and trust or not trust, but buy from or believe in or invest in or own shares in is extractive. In other words, it's taking. Life, And we sort of take that for granted that, you know, well, well don't make a mess, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, or clean up your mess, you know, that kind of thing. And that's sustainability in a way, but extraction is taking life. And when you take life, that's degeneration. That's what degeneration is when you take life. And so regeneration is really not about blaming and and, and you know, sort of, Uh, demonizing, you know, those institutions or those economic sectors so much as saying, wait, that road, that degeneration road doesn't go much further. That's everything screaming at us, all the science, our experiences and so forth. Like that road doesn't go much further. Why are we going down that road? Mm -hmm. And so regeneration is about a 180 pivot. Like, can we just stop and go the other way? Can we not regenerate the world? and have a GDP and an economy and jobs rather than degenerate it. And the fact is we can, and it's really a question of healing the future or stealing the future, because what we're doing is stealing the future. Now it used to be from our children, now it's from ourselves practically. And so it really isn't like, Something that that what's happening with respect to climate is wrong, or not at all. It's all great. What everybody's doing is fantastic, but unless we actually do address those institutional um, incentives, you know, and actually assumptions that are so deep that people don't even understand them as assumptions, you know, um, then we won't have a chance Mm -hmm. at all because the, you know, Richard. One of the things too. Go back to the fix it thing, like, you know, Bill Gates and others like John Kerry, for example, are saying, if we don't do nuclear, we're screwed, okay. <laughs> and and this idea, you know, that there is this one thing, but you could have renewable energy or nuclear energy for the whole world today. And we still be going right over the cliff mm-hmm. because we're destroying all the living systems on Earth. We're mm-hmm. destroying our oceans, our fisheries, our land, our forests, you know, our insects, our pollinators, and so forth. That has nothing to do with renewable energy or fossil fuel energy. That has to do with us. And so we have to see it, as you said earlier, as a system, its whole. You can't you, you can't silo it and separate it out and say oh, we're going to do that and do this and do that. You can do that. But unless you step back and look at it systemically, you're not gonna get to the core cause or core cure.
1: What an incredible year Thank you for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed this look in the rear view. Links to all the full episodes and the social media accounts for all the guests excerpted today can be found in the show notes and on the episode page at richroll.com. Part two with a bunch more awesome excerpted convos will be up later in the week, so stay tuned for that. And if you'd like to support the podcast, the easiest and most impactful thing you can do is to subscribe to the show on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and the like. Sharing the show or your favorite episodes with friends or on social media is of course always appreciated. And finally, for podcast updates, special offers on books, the meal planner, and other subjects, you can subscribe to our newsletter, which you can find on the footer of any page on Ritual.com. Today's show was produced and engineered by Jason Camiolo. The video edition of the show was created by Dan Drake and Blake Curtis. Portraits by Davey Greenberg and Grayson Wilder. Graphic elements courtesy of Daniel Solis. And our theme music was created by Tyler Pyatt, Trapper Pyatt, and Harry Mathis. Appreciate the love and support. I will see you back here in a couple days with part two of our best of 2021. Until then, relax. It's okay to take a break. Pause when agitated, try to enjoy the holidays. Peace, plants, namaste.